You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Journey Bible Church. My name is Mark Dodd. I serve as the care pastor here at Journey. And if you missed last week, we kicked off a new series on the parables of Jesus called Secrets of the Kingdom. And a parable is a simple story meant to reveal a deeper truth about the kingdom of God. We started the series with the parable of the sower because it's the key parable to understanding all of the others. Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, 13, asks this question. He says, do you not understand this parable? And when he's talking about this parable, he's talking about the parable of the sower. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So in the parable of the sower, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be fruitful in God's kingdom to be a fourth soil kind of person. A fourth soil person, the person who is fruitful in God's kingdom, they're the person who hears the word of God and does it. And so with that in mind, two of the things that we need to be asking ourselves when we, when we read any parable, two questions. What is the truth that we need to hear? And then what is the step of obedience that we must take? What must we do? So as I read this parable this morning, the parable of the rich fool, keep those questions in the back of your mind. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21 today. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and feel free to follow along on the screen with me. It says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, There's an author named uh, Ken Honda who wrote a book called Happy Money, in which he explores the relationship between money and happiness. And in his research, he identifies seven money personality types. So you have the compulsive saver, the compulsive spender, 
the compulsive moneymaker, the indifference-to-money person, the saver-splurger, the gambler, and the worrier. Now, the compulsive saver is a person uh, who saves money endlessly, right? They're very financially frugal. Think like an Ebenezer Scrooge type of character here. Like, if this is you, maybe like your kid comes up to you and says, Daddy, can we go get ice cream tonight? And your response might be, ice cream is a humbug, you know? Like, uh, you know, why don't you go do some chores and, and earn money to go get ice cream, right? Maybe that's you, I don't know. Then there's the compulsive spender, right? Uh, got some uh, Harry and Lloyd, Dumb and Dumber here. So <clears throat> compulsive spenders often make unnecessary purchases. They spend money to get immediate gratification, but they often experience buyer's remorse, especially after big purchases. So Harry and Lloyd, right, they come upon a lot of money, and what do they do? They spend every penny, right? They, they live it up, but they write IOUs, so it's fine, you know. <laughs> the compulsive spender, you know, is also, this could be a kind of person that has maybe, let's say, $50 in their bank account, and they order $45 worth of Cheesecake Factory to DoorDash to their house, right? Like, they're like, I've got the money in the account, it's fine, right? That's a compulsive spender. The compulsive moneymaker, their top priority is making more money, and this person craves recognition for their financial successes. They want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. So think Shark Tank here, right? Got Mr. Wonderful, Mark Cuban, Robert Herjavec, the son of an immigrant factory workers up there, you know. Uh, they are really successful at making more money. They also really like to be in the spotlight for their success. Then you have the person who's indifferent to money. This person rarely thinks about money, and they, they feel that money should not influence important life decisions. They, they just want to be happy. They don't want to get caught up in money. You know, just let me live my life. Right? And then they get their first bill in the mail. And they're like, probably should go make some money, yeah? You know? <laughs> then you've got the saver splurger. And I, I think of uh, Shaquille O'Neal here, okay? Let me explain. So saver splurger, they're smart with money for a certain amount of time but then they may give in to spending impulses out of nowhere. So these people share traits with the compulsive savers and spenders. So why do I bring up Shaquille O'Neal, okay? So when he was traded to the Phoenix Suns during his playing career, he went to Walmart in Phoenix, and to this day, he has the largest Walmart purchase in history. He spent over $70,000 in one Walmart purchase. He was there to buy furniture for his house, you know? Walmart, you know, like I didn't know that that was a thing, but apparently Shaquille O'Neal made it a thing, right? Um, so that's the saver splurger. Then you have the gambler, right? Gamblers take big risks with their money, and they're happy when the big risks pay off, but they're deeply upset when it comes to their losses. So this could be the person that goes to Vegas and gambles away a lot of money, or it could be someone who takes big risks with their investments. So like people who invest in uh, cryptocurrency, you know, like we got Dogecoin up here, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, it's, it's a risk, you know, props to you if that's your thing, right? Then you've got the worrier, the worrier. When I think of the worrier, I think of Michael Scott, right? <laughs> I declare bankruptcy, right? Like totally incompetent when it comes to how to, uh, how, how to get financial freedom. Uh, he's constantly worried about losing money. That's, that's the worrier. Which one of these personalities best describes you. 
Now, it's important to note that all of these ways of approaching money have their pitfalls. The compulsive saver may have money in the bank, but they may struggle to give money or to even spend money. The compulsive spender knows how to live it up, but they could be digging themselves into a hole financially. They too may also struggle with giving. The compulsive moneymaker may be great at accumulating wealth, but they may see that primarily as a tool to gain leverage or power for themselves. All of these ways of approaching money have their pitfalls, but perhaps the greatest pitfall in most of these money personality types is the love of money. You see, when money is the thing you look to for comfort, for security, for happiness, for pleasure, power, fame, you're setting yourself up for major disappointments. Why? Because money is temporary. It doesn't last forever. It comes and it goes. It's just like any other idol. It cannot ultimately satisfy you. In his commentary on Luke, David Garland notes this, fools do not take into account the inevitability of death and planning how to use wisely and properly their possessions, which are gifts from God, so as to please God rather than themselves. The love of money is a major pitfall. And here's the thing, Jesus knows our pitfalls when it comes to money. He addresses the topic on numerous occasions. In the parable of the sower, he says, the comforts of riches can choke us out and render us unfruitful in God's kingdom. Think of Judas. Judas, he started off well. He was a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus. But what happened? The love of money eventually choked him out. Literally choked him out. Jesus also tells the parable of the prodigal son in which a son demands his inheritance while his father is still alive. And then what does he do? He goes and spends all of his inheritance. And in this parable, Jesus warns us of the dangers of loving money, the dangers of greed. Jesus knows our pitfalls. So we've identified seven different money personality types. But the more important question here is, does Jesus have a better way in mind? And as we unpack this parable, I believe the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Yes, he does. So as we take a deeper look at the parable of the rich fool, we want to consider the truth that Jesus wants us to grab hold of. What is the secret of the kingdom that Jesus wants us to know? And then what is the step of obedience that we must take as a result? And the secret that we're going to discover in this parable is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. What I mean by that is that God's kingdom does not operate in the same way that the world does. In the world, the goal is to accumulate as many earthly treasures as possible. But God's kingdom is about securing eternal treasures that last forever. And so then as our next step, the parable gives us an opportunity 
for some self-examination to see if our lives are congruent with God's kingdom values. So that's where we're headed this morning. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Father God, I praise you for uh, revealing yourself to us, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable of the rich fool that we get to look at. And Father, I pray that as, as we unpack this parable, God, that, that we would not just be people who hear your word, but I pray, God, that you would make us into a people who are doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this section of scripture, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, is really divided into two parts. Part one, Jesus gives us a warning about the love of money. And then in part two, Jesus tells a story about the folly of loving money. So let's jump into part one here, the the warning section. The section begins with a member of the crowd speaking up and saying, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, in Jewish law, it was custom for sons to get a share of their father's inheritance. Typically, the firstborn son would get a double portion of the inheritance, and each additional son would get a single portion of the inheritance. In this particular instance, this man speaking up feels that an injustice is being done to him. His brother has control of their father's inheritance, and he hasn't received his share So he's asking Jesus to settle this dispute. So when there was confusion about how to apply the law in certain circumstances, rabbis often would be asked to intervene and settle disputes. It's similar to how we look to the Supreme Court to settle matters over law when there is gray area. The Supreme Court interprets the law, right? That's what this guy is asking Jesus to do in this instance. So let's talk about inheritance for a second. In our world, there are lots of things that can rip families apart, right? Religion, politics, KU versus K-States, right? Marvel versus DC, pumpkin spice versus apple cider. I think the results are in, like, we're an apple cider church, guys. Like, sorry, pumpkin lovers, but it's, it's just the truth. But one of the things that's true in Jesus' day, and it's certainly true in our day, is that families can become divided over an inheritance. There's a movie that came out a few years ago called Knives Out. It's a murder mystery movie, and at the center of the story is a very wealthy old man who dies, and his children, the Thromby family, they convene at his estate to see how the inheritance will be divided among them. And there's great anticipation because all of them are thinking they're they're, they're gonna be inheriting like millions and millions of dollars. To their surprise, they learn that they're not going to receive one penny of their father's inheritance because the inheritance was instead given to the old man's caretaker who befriended him in his old age. Take a look at this clip. Uh, Harlan's assets included um, the house. The house, which he owned up, right? Um, 60 million. Yes, 60 million in various cash accounts and investments. And of course, the real asset sole ownership of blood like wine, 
his publishing company. He also wrote up a statement when he was making the changes and he wanted that read first. Dearest Linda, Walter, and Joni, some of you may be surprised by the choice I've made here. No pleasure was taken in the exclusion and its purpose was not to sow greater discord in the family, quite the opposite. Please accept it with grace and without bitterness, but do accept it, it's for the best, Dad. Um, wow, well, yeah, not too complex at all. Uh, this will be quick. <laughs> I, Harlan Thromby, being of sound mind and body and yada, 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 I hereby direct that all my assets, both liquid and otherwise, I leave in their entirety to Marta Cabrera. My entire ownership of Blood Like Wine Publishing, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. The copyright of its catalog, likewise, I leave in its entirety to Marta Cabrera. Uh, no, that's not, no. that's, no, that can't be, no. can I see that please, Alan? That's yeah, right. Please. This can't be legal. It's right. He's, you know, he's been, oh he, he's been, 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 Yikes, right? It's a funny clip, but for some of you, it may hit close to home. You may have found yourself in a situation that maybe feels similar to that. But here's the thing. It's foolish to put your hope in an earthly inheritance. Why? Again, because it's temporary and it may not play out the way you think it will. So is squabbling over an inheritance worth dividing your family in the eyes of God? Well, if money is your God, then I could see why you would think so. So Jesus gets asked to settle this dispute about an inheritance. He's being asked to divide this earthly inheritance between two brothers, to be the judge over an earthly inheritance when this man should be concerned about Jesus being the judge of his eternal inheritance. But I digress. Jesus does not want to get dragged into a dispute about an inheritance. Instead, he uses the dispute as an occasion to give a warning about the love of money, what we could call greed or covetousness. Look at verse 15 again. He says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Church, your worth is not in how much money you, money you make or the amount of possessions that you accumulate. Your worth is not your inheritance. Your worth is not in your stuff. But if we don't guard ourselves against the love of money, it's really easy for us to start finding our worth and money and possessions. But the love of money will only corrupt your soul. The love of money is not compatible with God's kingdom. 
Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, Jesus talks about what it costs to be his disciple, to be about his kingdom. And Luke 9, starting in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Look at verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Again, we see the upside down nature of God's kingdom at play here. Do you really want to be a disciple of Jesus? Then are you willing to surrender to your love of money? Do you, do you love Jesus more than anything in this world or are you trying to gain the whole world? Are you willing to forfeit your soul for more of the temporary stuff? Or are you willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Have you counted that cost? Here's another way to think about it. Which one of these songs resonates with you more? Money, 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 right? Or you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Which song resonates with you? Church, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life consists in whether or not you have surrendered to the King of Kings. So Jesus gives us a warning about the love of money. And then in the part two, Jesus tells a story, a parable about the folly of loving money. So this parable is interesting. We're told that there's a rich man who owned land that produced many crops. So he thought to himself, where am I going to store all these crops? There's so much. So he decided to tear down his barns and build larger ones where he stored all of his crops. Did he then invite people who were in need to come enjoy his harvest? Did he give away any of his crops? No. Instead, he relaxed and said, you've done well. You have enough crops stored up for years and years. So he relaxed. He ate and drank to his heart's content. He was living the good life. But God said to him, you are a fool. Tonight you're going to die and who's gonna benefit from all the things you've prepared for your own selfish purposes? It's foolish to lay up treasure for yourselves and to not be rich toward God. Now, when it says that the land produced plentifully, bountifully, the Hebrew understanding was that everything belonged to God and that God was the one bringing the growth. Psalm 24.1 states, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then also in Mark chapter four, verses 26 through 29, Jesus tells another parable about a farmer who scatters seed on the ground and, and it grows, but the farmer doesn't know how it grows. The idea there is that God is the one who brings the growth. 
But this rich fool is not acknowledging God at any point in this process. His land produces bountifully, but his focus is only on himself. Just listen to how self-absorbed this guy is. He says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. Not once did it occur to this man that he is already rich. He doesn't need all of this abundance. Not once did he ask himself, how could others be blessed by this abundance? What could God do if I use these resources for his kingdom? You know, when I first read this parable, I couldn't help but think about Joseph in Egypt. If you remember this story, we're told that there were going to be seven plentiful years of harvest in Egypt followed by seven years of famine. So during the plentiful years, Joseph had one-fifth of the produce of the land stored in the city's storehouses to prepare for the famine. We're told in Genesis 41, 49, says Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the land of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So Joseph and the rich fool both stored the harvest to where they had plenty. Here's the key difference. Joseph stored a portion of the harvest so that the people in Egypt could live during a time of famine. Not only that, but Joseph's brothers were even saved because Joseph managed the resources of the land so well. This painting is uh, it's just called Joseph in Egypt. And it's a, it's a painting of Joseph reconciling with his brothers. The rich fool, on the other hand, has all of these resources accumulated. Think of the people that he could have helped. Think of the lives that could have been saved. Think of the families that wouldn't have had to go hungry. Think of the impacts he could have had. But instead, he's only concerned about himself. The evidence of his self-indulgence and self-absorption is most evident in verse 19 when he says, I said to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see, money is his security. It's his hope. It's his comfort. So he hoards it. He holds on to it. He can't let it go. And Jesus has a word for people who live their lives like that. Fool. Fool. So let's unpack that for a second. Jesus is not saying that this man is a fool for being wealthy. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying this man is a fool even for wanting to enjoy life. Jesus is calling this man a fool because he's completely left God out of the equation. He's forgotten God. 
He's forgotten that everything that he has is a gift from God. He's also a fool because he has stored up his treasure in the wrong place. While the rich fool will enjoy a few years of ease, an eternal destiny apart from God is where he's ultimately headed. That's why he's a fool. And then Jesus ends the parable by saying this, so is the one who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich toward God. Church, it's foolish to live your life only thinking about what you are laying up here on earth because it's temporary. God is, God is much more concerned about what you are laying up for eternity. That's the truth that we need to hear from this parable this morning. God is more concerned about your eternal inheritance. So now the question is, well, what do we do as a result? What do we do with that? So earlier we looked at the seven different money personality types. And then we asked the question, does Jesus have a better way in mind? Yes, most definitely. And it lies in the phrase, being rich toward God. So I want to suggest an eighth money personality type this morning. And it's what I would call a kingdom-minded person. A kingdom-minded person. A person that is rich toward God. So here are three characteristics, I would argue, of someone who is a kingdom-minded person. Number one, a person with a kingdom mentality is generous. They're generous. They manage their resources well so that they can be generous with what they have. They give to their local church. They give to those who are in need. They hold their resources with an open hand. They're, they're not seeking to, to accumulate all, all these resources just for themselves. They, they wanna know, how, how can I use these resources to be a blessing? They're generous. Secondly, a, a kingdom-minded person is content with what God has given them. They aren't coveting what their neighbor has. They aren't trying to keep up with the Joneses. They don't have a fear that they're missing out on the good life. They're not worried about those things. They trust in God's provision. They trust that what God has given them is enough. And then finally, a kingdom-minded person is joyful not because of how much money they have in the bank, not because of the inheritance they might receive, not because of how many possessions they have. They're joyful because their security is in Jesus. They're joyful because they have an eternal inheritance to look forward to. So those are three characteristics of a kingdom-minded person. But what does it look like practically to live this out? What does this look like practically? Number one, surrender. We have to daily surrender to Jesus as king because if we aren't living a surrendered life, here's what'll happen. We will want to be king of our own life. We will wanna be in control. That's when we start clinging really tightly to the love of money. But when you surrender to Jesus, you are willingly giving up that control. I love how the, the apostle Paul describes the surrendered life. 
He says in Philippians chapter three, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Secondly, give. Give. If you have never given before, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith this morning. To look at your resources first and foremost as a gift from God. And then to give a portion of your resources back to God as an act of worship. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8 says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then finally, love. Love. Don't settle for the love of money. Love the Lord your God with all of your hearts, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Learn to love what God loves and love abundantly. Paul says if you were to give away all that you have, like if you were the complete opposite of of the rich fool, if you were to give away everything that you have, but you did it without love, Paul says you gain nothing. So when you give, do it with love. Do it cheerfully. Live for God's kingdom because you love the king. Surrender, give, and love. So in conclusion, this parable gives us an opportunity for some self-examination. How do you feel about what God has given you? Are you stewarding what God has given you? Are you a generous person? Or do you tend to store things up for your own pleasure and purposes? Are you a kingdom-minded person? Remember this, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. So are you willing to look at your resources with kingdom vision? Will you be like Joseph, who stewarded the resources of Egypt and was able to be a blessing? Or will you be like the rich fool, hoarding his resources for his own selfish purposes? I hope that you will agree with me this morning that the love of money cannot give you the satisfaction that you are looking for. But thanks be to God that Jesus has a better way. Let's pray. Father God, I I first and foremost praise you that you are a generous God, that you did not withhold your one and only son. And Father, I thank you that because of Jesus, we have a life. Father, I pray that you would make us into the kind of people who are generous, who are content, who are joyful. And joyful not, not because of what 
our earthly circumstances may hold, but we're joyful because of what, what awaits us in eternity with Jesus. So God, would you give us kingdom perspective? Would you help us to love your kingdom more than any kingdoms of this world? God, give us, give us a heart that longs for your kingdom above all else. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.